Well, we have been looking at the book of Zechariah because it is a book of hope and encouragement, uh, not only for the people at that time, but encouragement for future generations as they would understand about the work that God was going to ultimately accomplish through his son in the new temple and the redemption that would occur in that. So strong are those pictures that uh, in just a couple of weeks, as I round out the end of our study in Zechariah, those lessons are all going to move to Sunday morning because they need to be Sunday morning and what the, those messages are. And you will have had the, the preview of all of that and understanding where all that is tracking to as the final chapters of Zechariah just give stunning imagery and pictures of the great redemption that would be accomplished in, in Christ. But the, the author is building up to that. You might remember in chapter 7 that you had a question come from the people and they are asking, uh, should we keep fasting and mourning the, every year like we have? Because they had been doing that with the temple's uh, destruction and remembering for the past 70 years about that. And, and so this... These two chapters are an answer to that. We kind of had to break it in half because of the the length of the material. But what we're going to see now in in chapter 8 as God continues to answer this is a picture about being a blessing. And as I thought about the message of what Zechariah was saying, something uh, struck me as reminding me of something that I've experienced in my life and uh, you might have experienced it as, as well. If you've ever been to the Magic Kingdom at Disney, there is a particular attraction called the Carousel of Progress. Now, if you've ever had the fortune or misfortune to uh, be on that ride, the one fortunate thing about it is it is your 30-minute air-conditioned respite from the Orlando heat, as you can get on that for a while and cool down and all of that. On that ride, what they spend their time doing is talking about what has occurred for about the past hundred years in our country in terms of technological advances. And it kind of jumps about every 20 to 25 years and showing, you know, how we went from washing clothes outside and going to the bathroom outside a hundred years ago to now here we are today and look at how much has changed over time. And there is this song that they sing that will drive you crazy the rest of the day that you're there that simply says there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow just a dream away. And the reason I bring that up is it is something that that ride is doing is saying tomorrow is going to be better. And by looking at history, you can see how that has happened in our country. What the author here in Zechariah here is doing as he prophesies is that same thing. Is yes, I know things are bad, but if you will trust me, there is a big, beautiful tomorrow that's coming and what Christ is going to accomplish and what God wants to do for these people. So as we look at chapter 8, I want you to observe that and be thinking about what is being pictured here for these people that is not really giving them hope in the present, but hope for the future that would encourage them to live their lives today. Let's start with the first eight verses of Zechariah 8, where uh, we read there, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with wrath. 
Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. And thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. For thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country and will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Big picture as he begins in talking about how bright their future is. In fact, verse two should really be studied. Because remember, when God asks that question, or the people ask the question of God, should we keep fasting and mourning? God's response was not yes or no to that yet. Instead, he says, well, when you were doing all of that, you really weren't doing it for me. Your worship was self-centered. It was self-focused. You did it for you, not because you were concerned about the things of God. And so for in the midst of God's answer to turn around and say, but in spite of that, I am jealous for my people, even though you're not worshiping me for the right reason, even though you've had things wrong all of these times, the 70 years with the the temple being destroyed. Here is God saying, in spite of all of that, how deeply I desire to be with you. Verse two, using the phrase with jealousy, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. When, When you have to really amplify jealousy and great jealousy and jealousy. God's really jealous for his people. That's what's being underscored here. Do you understand how much you mean to me? How much I want you? And I'm going to act on on your behalf. And I want you to get some of the pictures that in verse 3, here God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back to my people. I'm coming back to Zion. I'm going to be in Jerusalem. And my people are going to be faithful. Jerusalem is going to be a faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord is going to be so holy that it's just going to be called the holy mountain. Not only do you get the picture of faithfulness, but then the next picture in verse 4 and verse 5 is just this imagery of peace and prosperity. Everybody's going to live to an old age and, and, and the kids are all playing in the streets and it just... Sounds like everything is put back together and there's not going to be war or difficulty or suffering or pain. It's just going to be great in the picture that's that's being given here about what they are going to experience. Now, I want us to think about this for a minute in this prophecy. When did the actual physical city of Jerusalem ever have a moment where you would have said... That is a faithful city and that mountain is a holy mountain and that city just lives in peace and prosperity and blessings and joy and ease. And it's just been great there. It doesn't. (laughs) 
It never does. Even in the time that Zechariah is prophesying, remember Persia is the oppressor and is keeping them free from rebuilding and why God had sent Zechariah and Haggai to go and say, you've got to rebuild the temple because Persia was stopping them. When Persia falls, it's not going to get any better. The empire of Greece is going to arise and they're going to be under the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are going to be fighting with them and they're going to be in the midst of all that. The temple is going to get desecrated and be all a mess at that point. And then when that's all done, the Roman Empire is going to rise up and they're going to subjugate the land as well. And then if you know anything of the, of the time of the 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 Holy Land from 100 AD to now, it's never been calm or peaceful and still isn't over there. So what are we pointing to and talking about? One of the things I want you to think about as we go through this chapter is, when is this talking about? When is this ultimately going to happen that we're talking about faithful city, peace, joy, and, and blessings of God all happening? But I want you to see what Zechariah is doing is he's pointing to something in the future. There's something great in the future in store for you. God is going to do great things. And I want you to imagine what this would have sounded like in the ears of the people. Because as they heard this, you're in the middle of the temple being rebuilt. The city's not rebuilt. Things are very difficult. You have oppression from Persia at this time. And you can imagine how ridiculous this would sound. In fact, you get a sense of that in verse six, because God seems to answer that when he says, if it is too marvelous, too impossible, too amazing in the sight of the remnant of my people for those days, if that just sounds like a no way possibility, notice what God answers in that verse six, should it be marvelous or too amazing to me? (laughs) Just because you think this can't happen, God goes, does that mean I can't do it? (laughs) Just because you think it's impossible, do you think it can't happen? And I think this is an important start to seeing what Zechariah is prophesying because we have the tendency to do this still with God even today. And I was amazed how this morning's lesson and tonight's lesson, though in completely different ballparks of the Bible and in spheres, are absolutely overlapping together because you have this picture of that sometimes we can think the the future's impossible. There's no way for things to get better. There's no way that God could make things more glorious in the future. That just can't happen. And that's what these people are saying right here. They're saying to God, there's no way what you're saying through your prophets could possibly be. And God's saying, well, just because you think it's too amazing, too much, too impossible, does that mean that God can't do it? How many times have we thought that in our life it just it can't get better? There's too much pain, too much loss, too much hurt, too much has happened, and it's just absolutely impossible to think that anything could get any better. And one of the things that God is always trying to remind us is that just because it's difficult now doesn't mean that God can't do something about it, that God can't reverse it. And in fact, that is what is happening right here that I really want to underscore. 
These are the people that asked a question in chapter seven, should we keep fasting? And God challenges them and says, you aren't even doing that for the right reason. But even though you've been messing up all of this time, I still have a great future for you. That's pretty stunning. You know, God could come along and go, you've been messing up these 70 years, you know, so never mind. Just just forget it. Never mind. I, I, I can't deal with you anymore. No, it's amazing. The answer here where he says, no, here's what's going to happen because I care for you. Even though you've been messing it up all this time, I'm jealous for you. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make this happen. And I'm going to reverse your fortunes. And I'm going to change things. And there is going to be this great future that lies ahead. Now keep holding in your mind when, and we'll keep pressing on in this passage. Now look at what verse 9 says. Because from verse 9 to verse 13, it is an interesting way to encourage. Let me just say, This is the hard part of the encouraging message that Zechariah is giving. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man, nor any wage for beasts, Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And you who have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, but let your hands be strong. I want you to notice that he begins in verse 9 by saying, all right, I, I need you to be strong and be ready to do the work. Build the temple, engage in the work that God has given you to do. But then notice what he says in verse 10 when he reminds them and says, you know, up until the point that you got to work on the temple, I made your life hard. You see that in verse 10? Verse 10, he says, before those days, There was no wage for the people, no wage for the animals. There was no safety from the enemies, he says, from those who went out and went in. And look at the end of verse 10. I underscore that word. I, I set every person against their neighbor. Here's God going. I just made things a mess down there. You you thought you were going to go your own way and do your own thing. But but while your lives were not right with God, I was kind of making it hard for you. And remember, when we studied Haggai, Haggai said the same thing. In chapter one, he goes on and says, you guys were planting and getting nothing out of it. You were working hard and nothing was happening. And God was trying to communicate something to the people at that time. And I think sometimes we we can miss And sometimes fail to consider that there are times when we need to think about when life is not going right, what is God doing? And that is especially true when you think about it on national levels and global levels. Sometimes we chalk up too many things to just being by accident 
rather than what God says right here. As I would suppose if anybody was living in the days of Zechariah and, you know, they were planting and not getting anything out of it and their wages were terrible and they weren't making much money and there was an awful lot of violence and everybody's hand was against one another, just like God says. I don't know a lot of people would have said, you know, probably we need to turn to God. That God could solve that. Now, I'm sure they were trying to figure out their own thing. And, okay, well, how can we solve this? What do we need to do? And so what we need to do is we need to have more laws or less laws to deal with all of these things. We need new politicians. We need new policies. We need all these things. And here's God going, that's not going to change anything. That's not going to fix anything. That's not going to be the answer. And I think so often we have the tendency to do that is to realize that our only hope is to get right with God. And I will state that plainly. We can rearrange all the deck chairs of this country, all that we want to. And until it gets right with God, it's not going to matter. And we can keep pretending that, well, if we would just do a different law or have a different politician or have a different policy or do a little this, it's not going to matter until we get right with God. And so often we miss the reality of what this is ultimately all about, that God is sovereign over nations and rulers and leaders. And and we just do not connect with what God is trying to communicate to us with that. And so with that picture, we need to remember then. That we're seeking after God and only blessings can come if we seek after him. And I'm just amazed at how God does that right here. And he says, you need to get back to work because I can bless you. If you seek me, I can be found. Or if I wanted to bring in Matthew 7, if you'll ask me, I can give it to you. You have that message sitting right here, but the people haven't been doing it. And so he's encouraging them to make that turn, encouraging them to be those kind of people. In fact, the title of the lesson comes from verse 13, because notice what he says when he says, I will save you and you will be a blessing. Isn't that interesting? So you haven't been doing what's right. You've been doing things all wrong. And here is this picture of a great future coming. A great day is coming. It's going to be peace and prosperity. He says, I'm going to save you. And when I save you, here's what's supposed to happen. I want you to be a blessing. And notice how he then pictures that in verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem into the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh month and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come 
even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another city saying, let us go at once and entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. And many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of a robe of the Jews, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is an amazing image of ultimately what God is picturing of how we are called to be a blessing. As I think you can get the sense, he is not talking about what's going to happen in Zechariah's day and time. But when Christ comes and the great salvation comes, here's the reversal that's going to happen. And he says, I'm going to save you. And there's supposed to be a result. That result is that we will be a blessing. And you'll notice here there are three pictures given of how we would be a blessing. Number one, you'll notice what he says in verses 16 and 17. It is a, 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 a text that I know just blew your mind when God said, here's what I want you to do. Here's the kind of people I want you to be. Speak the truth to one another goes out first. That might ring a bell. The apostle Paul says that in Ephesians chapter four, he quotes right here and says, Speaking the truth to one another right here is that he comes right here and says, you know, this whole thing right here about being a blessing and being the people of God. Let me let me go grab that and bring it right here. We're talking about us. Speak the truth to one another, rendering your gates judgments that are true. Make for peace. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. Don't lie or love false oaths. He goes on and talks about in, in verse 19, there being truth and peace. Essentially. Do what you know you're supposed to be doing. To be a blessing, number one, means we have to live as the people of God. To be a blessing means we have to live as the people of God. And we have to do what this is describing here, that we would be blessing others because we are doing what God has called us to do. You might remember in chapter 7, he said the same thing. He says it again here. What do I want of you? I want you to be right and be just and do good and be what God's people are supposed to be. Or if I could use the Sermon on the Mount. You're supposed to be the salt of the earth and you're supposed to be the light of the world. Be the people of God to be a blessing. And that's the first picture that is given to us here and that we would then serve God in that way. The second picture is in verses 18 and 19. You might notice that in verses 18 and 19, God finally answered the question that was given back in chapter seven and verse three. You want to talk about waiting a long time for an answer. Back in chapter 7, verse 3, should we weep and mourn or should we stop doing that now? Notice the answer God gives in verse 19. He says, you know all those fasts and those things that you were doing in the fourth month and the fifth month and the seventh month and the tenth month? You had all the fasts in the morning. He says in verse 19, let's make them feasts. Now it's time for celebration. There is a celebration. Well, why? Well, because God is with his people. Now, what is particularly fascinating to think about is when this physical temple is accomplished in 515 B.C., 
Do we see the presence of God coming and filling the temple and great rejoicing? Yay, God is with us again. You don't. I have been always fascinated that when the temple was constructed, the glory of the Lord comes, fills the tabernacle. The priest can't go in. God is with us. Great rejoicing. When the temple is completed in the days of Solomon, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The priest can't go in and there's a great celebration because God is with us. And then when the temple is completed this time, absolutely nothing happens. And it's almost like saying, no, that's not the temple event we're looking for. That's really not what we're pointing to when we talk about God with his people as this temple but was ultimately waiting for when Christ comes and the picture of the great temple that he was. And that was the essence of John one, that his arrival was showing that God is with his people now yet again. Zacharias pointing to that day and time, not to this present temple, but a temple to come. And I think it's a beautiful picture of this great joy and rejoicing that we as the people of God have because we understand that God is with us. It's not a time of fasting and mourning, but a time of celebration. And the third picture, do you find verses 20 through 23 uh, uh, amazing? Did you catch what all the people are doing at that time? It says in verse 20 that you have people who are going to come, inhabitants of many cities. And here's what's going to happen, God says. These inhabitants are in all of these Gentile outsider cities. And they're all going to get together, even verse 22, strong nations. They're all going to get together and have this conversation. They're going to say to one another, you know, we should probably seek the Lord. We might want to seek his favor. And then it becomes even down to the, the each person in verse 23, where it says 10 people from among the nations of all these different languages are all going to find this one person who actually belongs to God. And they're all going to go up to that person and say, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Now, again, there is nowhere in Jerusalem's history that you're going to point to and say, well, in 532 B.C. or in 415 B.C., that little event happened. He is talking again about when Christ comes, it's going to cause the world to find people who are God fearers and want to go to them and say, hey, we know that you can seek the favor of God. Will you do that for us? And we want to get to know that God. Now, here's why I think that is tremendous, because that means we are supposed to live our lives in such a way so that people will do that. We're supposed to live our lives and be such a blessing in the world that people will actually do that. In fact, I, you see that picture in the New Testament when all of this that we're talking about in chapter eight about Jerusalem being a faithful city. You come into the New Testament and we're shown 
We're the new Jerusalem. New Testament's filled with that imagery. Jesus is the new temple. The new Testament's filled with that imagery. Here is this picture of us that we are to be the blessing to the world so that they can find the favor of God. And friends, here's what I want to underscore with this. As the world falls down, that will be the time when more people will seek him. One of the things that we have to understand is that good times don't cause people to turn to God. Prosperity doesn't do that. (laughs) Pleasantries and prosperity and blessings and wealth. People don't care about God when they're doing fine. It's when culture disintegrates and nations fall that people now wonder what's going on. Difficulty and hardships and trials are what cause people to reevaluate their lives, to look for something more, to consider if there's something deeper, to think about if there might be something else they should be looking for. And the reason I think this is so important is that we are supposed to be the ones who are to step into that moment and be the blessing to the world so that they will come to us and talk to us about seeking God's favor. Which means this hard thing. So as the world gets darker, we can't recoil and hide. We're supposed to be the people that as those who are reevaluating the situation are seeking the favor of God, find us. That's what this prophecy is talking about. That we would be the people of God and as things get hard, we shine All the more that we don't panic like the world. We don't act like the world because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in God. And whether it be whatever happens in terms of economics and prosperity and culture or country, our hope is not in those things. And we will not panic or be afraid because we're going to be pointing people to a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so we can't hide and withdraw in the midst of that. We've got to step forward and press into that all the more and point people to the heavenly hope. This is going to be our time to be a blessing to the world. This is going to be our time. The time like Zachariah is talking about. When, when things get hard and difficult, they're going to be looking around and saying, well, who's somebody I can ask about the favor of God? And I'll leave it in your shoes tonight. Would they ask you? Would they ask you? Would they know? Because you shine that you would be somebody that they could come to And they would know that they could find out more about God and seek God's mercy and seek God's favor. Are you that kind of person? Because Zechariah says, when Christ comes and he saves people, his expectation is they're going to bless the world. And as they bless the world and how they live, people in their dark times will have light bulb moments. And they're going to come to you and say, show us the favor of God. Live your life this week and live your life the rest of your days 
being the blessing that God wants you to be. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look at a prophecy like this, it is, it is jaw-dropping and amazing to see not only how merciful you are, and it's amazing to see how jealous you are for us, but Lord, that you would use us to be the means by which that the world could be saved. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts in such a way so that we would never put our hope here in this world. We would never put our hope in our leaders here, never put our hope in our country, but rather put all of our hope on you because we know you are above it all and rule over it all. And Lord, whatever happens in the future for this country and for our culture, whatever happens in terms of physical things and prosperity and economies, Lord, I pray that we would be a light so that whether we rise or fall, whether we move to light or to darkness, the people would come to us and ask about the hope that we have in you. Lord, forgive us for when we don't shine like we ought to. Lord, forgive us for when we have hidden our light. Forgive us for when we have panicked. Forgive us for when we've acted like the world or have been caught up in the things of this world or caught up in the affairs of the things that so many get caught up in. And Lord, help us to live as heavenly kingdom citizens and help us to show people around us that you are the only hope. And that things can only get better with you. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives that way. And Lord, I pray that you would send people here to hear that message of hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would open doors. Open doors in our lives of people that we can talk to. Give us opportunities for people to come up to us and ask us questions about our faith and about our lives as we live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to the great king who rules over it all and to see the blessed life that you can have in him. Isn't it interesting that then Jesus comes along and his very first sermon is all about a blessed life. How to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It's not by accident that he comes in and goes, I've got a blessed life for you so that you can be a blessing to the world and that you can bring more to him. We want you to be that kind of person. Can we help you do that? Let us know if we can help you in any way. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing.